Well, good evening. This is Joel, Masterclass Theology. We're in the book of Nahum, and we're in chapter 2. Let's open with a word of prayer. God, I thank you for this text. I just pray, Lord, that you challenge us and encourage us tonight, and thank you for what you have to teach us. And I just pray that we we take to heart what you, what you need for us to take to heart and what you expect for us to take to heart. And Lord, I pray that you help us as we as we, we wrestle with, with the implications of your word tonight, Lord, that we, 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 we take things at face value and we, do, we just trust you, Lord, and we, we submit to your teaching, we pray, O oh Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I, I get full disclosure alert. This is, we just taught this class on, on Zoom, and a setting was not clicked, and it did not record. So... I am cold teaching this a second time. So gone are the the input from my co-teacher Mick as he gives uh, commentary along, and my apologies for that. But I will do the very best I can. Uh, so I just wanted to give give that at the outset. Anyway, I'm so glad that uh, we can still record this and still get uh, still still teach this lesson. So yeah, tonight is is it's called against and Nahum chapter two. That's the word that continues to kick me in the rear against and we'll see that word at the very end of our text tonight so we open with with uh, we're Nahum chapter 2 and a warning and a promise verses 1 and 2 an attacker advances against you Nineveh guard the fortress watch the road brace yourselves marshal all your strength I used to play football. I played a year of football in college, and it's kind of like walking onto a, a football field and telling the team, hey, play good football today. Be good football players and do your very best to be a football man. It's like, this is Nineveh. This is the kingdom of Assyria. The, the, their whole culture was war and uh, conquering. And and so we, we can see some irony here. Some some The text is just kind of poking fun a bit. So uh, attackers coming, Nineveh. Guard the fortress, watch the road, brace yourselves, marshal all your strength. And there was a historical attack, and this was... Nineveh is going to meet its end with the Babylonians. The Babylonians are going to come through, and they're going to end Assyria. But before then, there was a people group called the Medes, M-E-D-E. The Medes, and a famous Mede in the Old Testament would be like Darius the Mede. And and the Medes were going to come, and they were going to, to, to put a siege upon Nineveh. And Nineveh was, was built so that it, it, it was almost impregnable. It was like the ancient city of Jericho. You weren't going to conquer Nineveh. There was something about Nineveh that nobody got to really beat it. And so uh, sieges didn't really work. And so the, the, the siege put on it by the Medes didn't work. So they were able to fend off that siege. The, the Medes were not able to conquer Nineveh, though they wished they could. But they were smart, and they got a bigger, badder team on their side called the Babylonians. And the Medes and the Babylonians together are later on going to, to destroy Nineveh and destroy the Assyrians. And that's going to be alluded to in our text today. But there was an attack that was going to come, and uh, an historical attack, and then one that was going to come later. And the one that was going to come later was going to destroy Nineveh. So, so God here is once again calling his shot and calling um, when God prophesies is going to happen. But then verse 2, The Lord will restore the splendor of Jacob like the splendor of Israel, though destroyers have laid them waste and have ruined their vines. Yeah, that, that verse is bittersweet because 
by this time in Bible history, the northern ten tribes of Israel have already been wiped out by the Assyrians. These same Ninevites wiped out and destroyed and exiled, carted away, killed, enslaved, crispy critters, no more. And God mentions Israel there. Israel was a way to, to describe the northern ten. And, yeah, it's wonderful words to hear that God's going to handle his business. And as you read the Bible, it's very tempting to wonder where God is when bad things happen. We wonder what God is up to. And many of us have wondered that as the coronavirus has whipped through our world. We're like, well, God, what, what's going on here, God? Where are you at, God? And our prayers tend to take that. We, we, we tend to go, okay, God, you know, do this, God. And we just pray you end this, God, and you, you would heal this. We don't know what God's business is. We don't know why this is what God has chosen. But as we sit here and as we embrace God in, in, in faith and trust, we pray that God handles his business, knowing that he will. Jesus prayed a prayer just like that when he prayed, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It is assumed his will is done in heaven. May that assumption be the same about the earth. God's king, we're not. He's God, we're not. So an attacker is coming. So you have a warning and a curse, a warning and a promise, pardon me, verses 1 and 2. And just pausing here, justice and waiting upon God. You know, our world is, especially uh, the American culture right now, we're, we're so, there's a lot of division. And that division is a great either or. And we see this with a current racial divide. And we saw this a lot with even how people handle the coronavirus and, you know, some people were like, you know what, I'm not going to stay in my home. Other people are like, well, you're evil if you don't stay in your home. And now, you know, with, with more racial things, it's, it's like people are crying out for justice and people want justice to be done. And God is a God of justice, but God is a God who handles his business. And so how do we deal with that? How do we wait upon God when injustice happens? And God expects us to live a certain way and to wait a certain way. And it's it's entirely possible to be on the right side but being on the right side in the wrong way so you'll see this in your marriages let's say you're arguing with your spouse and let's say you 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 score a couple points and you you poke up you know you you poke holes in arguments and you push enough buttons where the other person stops arguing and maybe they start to cry or they storm out of the room maybe you won the argument but you really didn't win anything you, you might have been in the right, you might say, but the moment you act a certain way, you're no longer in the right. And so it's entirely possible, even in the, the, the cultural divisions, to even be on the right, but not to be right, to, 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 to live in a certain way where you're not honoring God, you're honoring you. And we can't have that. That's not what we... So when Jesus, so basically a good, a good way to look at that is, are you living the Beatitudes? Are you being a peacemaker? Are you, being, are you mourning at your sin? Are you, are you me, being meek? Are you, all the blessed are those, are, are you being that kind of person as you argue on Facebook? Or I don't even know why you're arguing on Facebook as you're, as you're having these conversations. Is that you? This is something I've had to wrestle with a lot because I struggle with this. Justice and waiting upon God. Verses 3 to 5, battle chaos. The shields of the soldiers are red. We're going to get there in just one second. The warriors are clad in scarlet. The metal on the chariots flashes on the day they were made ready. The spears of juniper are brandished. The chariots storm through the streets, rushing back and forth through the squares. They look like flaming torches. They dart about like lightning. 
Nineveh summons her picked troops, yet they stumble on their way. They dash to the city wall. Their protective shield is put in place. Now, it's very tempting to look at this text and go, what in the world is going on? Isn't that great? They gave us some colors. But it's actually the colors that helps us out a lot. Because it's entirely possible to look at this text where Nineveh is named, but the, the one that's facing Nineveh is not named in chapter 2 here. And so how do we know who's attacking and when it is? Well, we have another book of the, in, the, in the Old Testament called Ezekiel. And in Ezekiel chapter 23, now i got to warn you, Ezekiel, Ezekiel 23, it has a couple images in it that are, um, how shall I say, sexually charged. They're, the, the image used um, by, from God to communicate through the, the, the priest Ezekiel is um, an image of idolatry and, and, should I say, harlotry. And it's a kind of like an image of, of someone, you know, um, prostituting themselves to an idol. Or Okay, there you go. So you've got this, this image. And so that, that's a very sexually charged image, but that's just part of it. So if you're reading Ezekiel 23 going, oh my gosh, tucked away in there are a couple little tidbits, like breadcrumbs we can follow. And in Ezekiel 23, we, verses 5 and 6, we read these words. The Assyrians, and this is, this is who Nineveh is, warriors clothed in blue. So evidently they were the blue team. That if you saw blue on the battlefield, you knew you were facing the Assyrians. Okay, and then down in verse uh, 14 and 15 of Ezekiel 23, it says, Figures of Chaldeans portrayed in red, with belts around their waists and flowing turbans on their heads. All of them look like Babylonian chariot officers, natives of Chaldea. So evidently, there was a, there was a blue team, and there was a red team. You didn't want to face either. We would say this if you, I guess if somebody was attacking uh, a nation and they looked across and they saw a flag and that flag had a red, white, and blue, you'd probably go, well, red, white, and blue, that's the United States. That's who we're facing. We probably don't want to face them. They don't seem to lose. Yes, I know there were other countries that have red, white, and blue in their flags, but largely, if you see a red, white, and blue, you see stars and stripes of those colors, you know who you're facing. Well, evidently, if you saw red, you were facing Babylon. That was the red team. And if you saw blue, that was Assyria. So in verse 3, it says, The shields of the soldiers are red. They're scarlet. What a terrifying image. Babylon didn't lose. They were a nation that could take on Assyria. And they were going to. In biblical history, they were going to. They were going to wipe them out. That was coming next. It's not there yet. God's just talking about that day. But there it is. So Ezekiel helps us with colors. We, we now know the characters in the story because of the colors. And yes, I know from our standpoint, it, it, the evidence is kind of shaky, but you got to understand, what would this communicate an original reader of Nahum going, they're wearing red, oh, I know who that is. It's like they would have gotten that immediately. Babylon advances and Nineveh frenzies about. So Babylon's moving forward. They're, they're handling their business. And Nineveh is stumbling. And these are the picked troops, the text says. This is Nineveh. They're like a warlike people. And... Yeah, this would be like on a basketball team, you know, a professional team. We're not, we're not going to expect them to just be dribbling the ball off their knees and having the ball run off the court and into the crowd or something every time. 
It's like you wouldn't expect that. You, you would maybe see that on like a little peewee team a few times, but a pro team, seriously? Um, yeah, I, I, I'll never forget. There was a, a pitcher on the St. Louis Cardinals named Rick Ankeel, and he um, – it was a famous game. I think it was a playoff game. They brought him in to pitch. It was some young kids, and he threw he threw really hard. And all of a sudden, he could not find the catcher. He was launching balls over the catcher's head into the crowd, and he never got himself fixed. He literally had to end the game after a few wild pitches. He just couldn't pitch anymore. His, his, he was just throwing it everywhere. And he literally ended the game. He never really pitched again. He came back as an outfielder. And it was just one of those crazy things. And, yeah, we're not expecting the picked troops of Nineveh to be stumbling about here. But that's what the text says. You see, Nineveh had a lot of things they could hold on to. They had a lot of things that they uh, that were like strength for them. The things that they could, you know, that were like strongholds. They could, they could just cling to. And they had so many wonderful parts of their culture that were strong for them. And all of a sudden it all comes crashing down. We have trust and we have might and so many things about ourselves and and the things that we have and that we, we deal with in our life. And we say, well, you know what? <sighs> we're going to be okay because of government or we're going to be okay because of politics or we're going to be okay because of church or we're going to be okay because of friendships or because of love or whatever that thing is. If it's, if it's human, if it's humanistic, if it is temporal, not heavenly or eternal – it has a small shelf life. Uh, there's only so far you can go. It's it's like the the yogurt you find in the back of your refrigerator that's expired. It might smell good. It might even taste good for a bit, but you don't trust it. You don't dare trust that. What are you trusting? What worldly things are you clinging to? We'll get there towards the end as well. Verses 6 to 10, the fall of Nineveh. The river gates are thrown open, and the palace collapses. It is decreed that Nineveh will be exiled and carried away. Her female slaves moan like doves and beat on their breasts. Nineveh is like a pool whose water is draining away. Stop, stop, they cry, but no one turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. The supply is endless, the wealth from all its treasures. She is pillaged, plundered, stripped, hearts melt. Knees give way, bodies tremble, every face grows pale. There's five things here. Number one, the wall is breached and the palace collapses. Nineveh evidently was like uh, the nation of, of, of the city of Jericho. You remember that Jericho had the wall and the walls came tumbling down. Yeah, so Jericho had its wall. Nobody beat Jericho because of that wall. And when God and his army beat Jericho, the walls had to come down because you had to deal with those walls. And evidently Nineveh had walls too, but it had some kind of a water system. There was something about it like a medieval castle would have a moat. You have to get around this moat. And, and there's something about water that Nineveh had that made it so you really could not beat them because the water worked against you as well. So the wall is breached. The palace collapses. Number two, it says in the Hebrew there, uh, well, it, the text in the NIV says, it is decreed that Nineveh will be exiled and carried away. The Hebrew literally reads, she will be carried away. I'll never forget. At the end of... Uh, the second Lord of the Rings book. It talks about uh, the, the, the guy Gollum, the little creature Gollum is leading Sam and, and, uh, and Frodo to, to, to Mordor. And he has this moment where he's talking with himself, the Smeagol character talking with Gollum. 
and it's like a self-talk. And he's trying to figure out how he can still be faithful to Frodo because he gave his word he was going to be faithful or he was afraid of him and still get the ring. He wanted the ring of power back. And he realized that, you know, he only had one option. And he kept saying, well, I'll lead them to her. She will get them. She will be the one. And we don't really find out who that she is to the third book. And it's that spider, Shilob, you know, the, 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 this, this, who's called she. And, and so she is carried away. We don't know what that is. Yes, it's possible the city was called she and then the, this, the culture, the Ninevite Assyrian culture is being carried away. But commentators kind of have fun with that because who's the big she? In, in, in Mordor, the big she was that spider. In, in Nineveh, who's the big she? Well, there was only one big she. Nineveh was all about its king. But the she, the queen, as it were, was the goddess Ishtar. And Ishtar was the entire system of worship. It was the number one goddess in that area, Ishtar. So the text might be picturing, literally they're taking her and carrying her out of there. And they're carrying her idols. They're robbing her of her power, as it were. She's being carried away. It's interesting. I know in ancient cultures that, you know, when, when they conquered each other, it was, it was as if the, 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 the gods of those cultures were going to war as well. Many people, you know, view a very historical way to view that the, the ten plagues of Egypt was that God, Israel's God, Yahweh, with each plague was taking on another god or goddess in the Egyptian pantheon. All the way leading up to one of their number one gods, Pharaoh himself, by killing the firstborn son of Pharaoh. And so I know you read in the Old Testament where, you know, the, the, the Philistines and, and, their, and their gods, you know, would go to war where something would happen and, and, and it's like, okay, our God won on the great Mount Carmel with, with, Eli, with Elijah. It's like, okay, who's really God, Yahweh or Baal? Let's have it out right now. Let's just be done with this. And boom. And so this is people, it's not just wars with people. It's like they're the gods that represent them or they represent those gods. They're, they're, it's assumed that they're going to war as well. She's being carried away. Well, number that's number two. The number three, her water security system collapses like a broken kiddie pool. So whatever this thing was around Nineveh that protected Nineveh, um, uh, my kids and I were outside today with with a, like a kiddie pool kind of thing. And at the very end, the kids were, I was wanting to go inside and the kids were like, we want more, we want more. I said, well, I'll tell you what, we have to empty this thing out. So why don't you lay on the grass? You lay this way and you lay that way and just hold on a second. And I just reached up and just dumped the water on them and they loved it. They were giggling and squealing and they thought it was the greatest thing ever. And that's the image we got here. It's like the great structure of Nineveh. It's like, it's like emptying like a kiddie pool. And um, number four, the great plunder is being plundered. And Nineveh was a plunderer. All the gold of the text say, oh, no, plunder the gold, plunder the silver. That's not Nineveh's silver. They're like smog in another Lord of the Rings image. It's like smog, the, 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 uh, the great dragon in the Hobbit book, where that's not smog's gold. That's the gold the smog has taken from people. And it's now her treasure, and she just rests upon it. Yeah. Um, the plunderer is being plundered. And so they're coming through. They're taking all this great security from Nineveh, the plunder. And the terrifying ones are terrified. Everybody was afraid of Nineveh. 
everybody was afraid of the Assyrians. You didn't dare fight the blue team because if you lost, they were going to torture you. They were going to they were going to humiliate you. You you did not want to fight them in in battle because uh, even if you had a bigger army, because you didn't want to lose, you were so afraid. You were terrified of them. They were they, everyone was terrified of them. And here we are in verse ten. She's pillaged, plundered, stripped. Hearts are melting. Knees are giving away. Bodies are trembling. Every face goes grows pale. Nineveh is getting a taste of its own medicine. It's a great reversal. That's what God does. God makes great reversals possible. You are a walking reversal. You were once God's enemy. And God redeemed you from your life of sin. You were once on team you. Not team Jesus, team you. And the temptation is to go back to team you. There's no doubt that when Jesus says you want to follow after him, you've got to deny yourself first and foremost. Because yourself's always going to get in the way. Jesus pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. But we want to pray that, you know, Lord, I want my kingdom to come. I want my will to be done. That's a very selfish, selfish mentality. But that's what we face every single day. When temptation comes, serve yourself, not serve God. That's the temptation. God made that reversal possible. Jesus on the cross paid your debt. He paid your price. He purchased you back. You know, we, we look at here, the heroes and military heroes, and, and you can read these stories about Iwo Jima and, and the, all the Medal of, Medal of Honor that came from that, even, even after they're dead. And you've got people who are, like, jumping on live grenades to save their guys and their, 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 their Marines and that kind of stuff. Nobody jumps on a live grenade to save the enemy. You do it to save your guys, your fellow soldiers or sailors or Marines or airmen. You don't do it to save the enemy. You don't, you don't give yourself on the field of battle to deliver the enemy. And that's what Jesus did. We were his enemy. What a great reversal that is. You are a walking miracle. Jesus took your place. You weren't on his team yet. He died to bring you onto his team. Wow. Nobody dies for the enemy. They might die to the enemy, but not for. God makes these reversals happen. Possible. Terrible and terrifying, 11 to 13. Where now is the lion's den? Now, I'm going to stop there for one second. My kids, they're young. My, my kids are young. They like, uh, they like the Lion King. They like Simba and all that kind of stuff. And they watch, you know, their Disney thing, and they... There's a new one called the Lion Guard. I don't know. It's like Simba's kids or his grandkids. I don't know who it is, but a bunch of little little lion cubs running around, you know, solving missions and that kind of stuff on the Pride Lands and, you know, going after the next generation of, 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 of hyenas or something. I don't know. But it's got a you know, nice little soundtrack. And I hear it every once in a while as they, as they watch some of their videos. You know, they get, they get their little work done, their workbooks. We let them watch some videos. And every once in a while, the Lion Guard comes on. It's tempting to look at to look at this image of lions and go, oh, that's cute. It's not cute. Lions are some of the most terrifying creatures ever. And they were uh, the national symbol of, of, of Assyria. They were the Assyrian lion. Was It was, it was a symbol of, of the goddess Ishtar. So if you Google image search Ishtar later on, you're probably going to see a bunch of pictures with her and her lions. She had a lot of lions. And the king would have lion hunts. He would import lions uh, my, my, my family and I took a cruise, and the cruise ended up in the, in the Strait of Gibraltar. And so we you know, got off and took a little excursion. We kind of 
checked out the rock and that kind of thing. I guess played a big in in, in the world wars the Gibraltar was a, a key point and we're walking around and we saw these monkeys and they were quick to tell us these monkeys are not native to Gibraltar and you know you don't mess around with the monkeys you know you can see them that they you know they jump on your shoulder and they take your hat off and they you know skitter around and everyone takes pictures and and they'll, you know, if you, if you have, they tell us don't have any open bags of food because they will take it. And you, just, you don't mess with the monkeys. They don't really hurt you. They just kind of just jump around and, and have photo ops. But they're like, they can be vicious. You just got to be careful. But they're, they're quick to remind us that somebody imported monkeys. Whether it was like Winston Churchill or something like that, they imported monkeys to Gibraltar. And that's what the king of Assyria did. He imported lions because he wanted to have lion hunts because why wouldn't he? He's the most powerful guy ever, so why wouldn't he want to subdue the most powerful creature ever? And lions are face are all, all over this text here. So where now is the lion's den, the place where they feed their young, where the lion and lioness went, and the cubs with nothing to fear? It's a kind of a cool image. You know, before this class tonight, I, I, I whipped up some spaghetti, and me and the kids and, and my wife were sitting down and we're eating a meal. When you're eating a meal around your dinner table... It's daddy's job to make sure everything is safe so the kids don't have to worry about anything. Just eat their food and enjoy the time around the table and have a lot to eat and just, you know, be satisfied. It's not a time to be afraid. And that's one of the things that as a dad, I, I want to make sure that we can have a meal. We can just have a meal with peace and just have a nice dinner. That's the image here. The, ki- the cubs have nothing to fear. So where now is that lion's den of Syria? The lion killed enough for his cubs and strangled the prey for his mate. Filling his lairs with the kill and his dens with the prey. Yeah, the Assyrian lion in his torturous ways. Lions, um, you know, lions are just killing and eating. This is not like it's um, condemning lions here. But Assyria was known to bring conquered people into their cities and parade them and torture them publicly, humiliate them in front of women and children and couples and families and all these things, old people, young people just because they could. And we have a New Testament example of this as well. The Romans did this as well. They called it a Roman triumph, a triumphant march. They would they would march the captives into the city and they would shame them and they would torture them with this very presence and making fun of them. And yeah, you're beaten and we beat you and all that fun stuff. So where is that now, God is saying? The big bad Assyrians, you and your lions. Yeah, how is that working out for you, Assyria? God utters a, uh, you think that's terrifying, what the Assyrians used to do to people? And it is. This next verse is horrifying. Verse 13, I'm afraid of this verse. You should be afraid of it too. I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. Mic drop. Boom. I am against you. That's a horrifying verse. It's right up there within within Matthew 7 where Jesus says, you know, I don't know you. That's a terrifying verse too. I don't know you. But we did all, we did all these things, Lord, but, you, but I don't know you. You know, we do so many things in the name of religion, but do you have that relationship with God where he could actually, where Jesus could say, yeah, but I know him. I know her. She's with me. He's on my side. 
that's my guy. That's, that's one of my girls. I mean, I know her. I'm against you, declares the Lord Almighty. And then he, then he goes after their, 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 their strongholds. I will burn up your chariots in smoke, and the sword will devour your young lions. Oh, I will leave you no prey on the earth. I like that. That's a gruesome image. That's like Simba when he runs away from Scar and he grows up. He doesn't know what he's going to eat. And the whole Hakuna Matata thing, start eating bugs. Because you got to eat something. These guys have no prey. To, see, even if the lions do survive, it, it, it's as if to say they they're, they're got the ribs sticking out of their chest. they got nothing to eat. No prey. The voices of your messengers will no longer be heard. That's not a small thing. You look at the book of Isaiah when Sennacherib, king of Assyria, is going after Jerusalem. And they're right there at the door, and they're calling out these messengers are talking smack to Hezekiah, saying, where's your God? Have your God send, send someone out here, to because we're going to come get you. And don't say that your God's going to deliver you, because he's not going to. No other God has delivered people. It's as if to say, we've got a whole temple storeroom full of all these gods. They couldn't deliver anybody. Your God will be just like them. You know, on the on, on the on the valley of of Elah, David t- took offense when the Philistines are out there talking smack, and Goliath was out there talking smack to Israel and Israel's God. And David's like, young David was like, "Who's going to stand up for our God? No one talks about our God this way. No, you're not going to go out there. Well, I'll do it. No, I'll, I'll, I, what, what's this guy compared to the Almighty God? I mean, seriously? Yeah." The voices of your messengers will no longer be heard. All these things that made you, you, Assyria, no more. Because you're going to be no more. So we got to pause here and think. All these strongholds that Assyria had, God knocked every one of them out. What's your stronghold? I mean, seriously, right now, when you hear me read that that verse, Nahum 2, verse 13, I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. Pause. Now, from a salvation historical perspective, you, a Christian, this is not talk about you to a degree. You are not God's enemy anymore. You were God's enemy. Jesus died in your place. He was your substitute. On the cross, he bore the wrath reserved for you and your sin. God's justice was meted out to Jesus, through Jesus, and now through grace. By grace, you've been saved. God is not against you like he's against Nineveh. But still, something did come to mind, didn't it? When God said, I am against you, what is that? That thing in your life that shouldn't be there, that attitude, the way you live, maybe it's your social media presence, maybe it's your family, maybe it's you as a husband or as a wife or as a parent or as a child or as a sibling, maybe you as an employee, maybe it's you as an employer. God says, I am against you. What is God against? That's going to be our closing question, and I think about that. Sit in Judah's chair for a moment. Wow. They had an enemy. 
and God is going to deliver them from their enemy. The upper ten tribes have already been wiped out. It's just Judah. And yeah, there's some Benjamites there kind of tucked into Judah's armpit and some Levites because Judah had some Levite cities as well. Levitical cities kind of like pockmarked through them. But but that's it. You just got Judah. That's all that's left. And the Assyrians are coming down and they're barking fire. And, and here it is. I mean, I think Jonah would have loved Nahum chapter 2. It's 150 years later than Jonah. But yeah, sit in their chair for one moment. Just pause. How would they have taken all this? Hearing those wonderful words of verse 2, that God's going to lay them to waste and restore Jacob. Actually restore them. Wow. That God still has a plan. That God still can handle his business. That God's still at work. Just sit in Judah's chair for a moment and take this in. Throw yourself into this ancient text and sit on Judah's chair. Wow. Our God is at work. Things are bleak. Things are just, it's just hard. But you know what? It's impossibly hard. It feels like, but God's at work and God will handle this business. I handle this when I pray with people. I, 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 I say, okay, we're going to leave this in God's hands. And we know that God's hands are very capable. God will handle his business. That leads us to a next thing here. As we sit in Judah's chair, we want to celebrate. What can we celebrate? You know, from, from like a, a United States example, we've had some enemies. And like, you know, I guess, you know, a couple generations ago, there was a Hitler or a Stalin. And, and now we've had more um, like an Osama bin Laden or even a Saddam Hussein or or... Yeah, we've got people who are clear defined enemies of our our country and our culture, and then they die, killed in battle or in, in in captivity. And there's a part of us that celebrates. There's a part of us that wants to wave our flags, and to feel good on the inside to say, you know what, he got his, finally. And we want to say, you know, praise God for, for, for delivering us from our enemies. But that's not Psalm 23, is it? There's a table prepared for us in the midst of our enemies. We're told by Jesus to love our enemies. And especially those of, us, those of our enemies that we know at face value, they're not Christians and they're probably, if not most likely, in hell. How do we celebrate that? Can we celebrate is there something to celebrate when God handles his business and kills our enemies and delivers us? Is there something to celebrate there? Or is it a time for mourning? I don't know. I've wrestled with that as I prepared this lesson. I still wrestle with it now. Can we celebrate the God who handles his business and celebrate the fact that God's business brings him glory and is the best thing for us as well? Can we celebrate the events that God causes to happen? Or can we celebrate, like what can we celebrate? And can we have perspective? I don't know if I have an answer to that. I want to celebrate with Judah as the Assyrian enemy is, is, is prophesied they're going to be destroyed and they begin to have their downfall. But I wonder if there's something deeper there. I wonder if there's something deeper we got. We have to struggle with. Are we allowed to celebrate like that? When Saddam Hussein died, 
and most likely went to hell. Can we celebrate that? Is that, is that a cause for celebration? Part of me says yes, another part of me says no. And how dare I celebrate that? I've had an enemy in my life. I hate to say it, this enemy was in the church. He was an elder. He had a lot of power. He had a lot of power to make my life really difficult. And he did. He made it at times very difficult. And I don't know why. He just didn't like me. And he really, there was things about me that he just didn't prefer. And he just really used his power to communicate that. He at times tried to divide the church from me. It's a little dinky church, a small church. And where one or two voices could sway a lot of power. And he used that. And he ended his time there very poorly. And he... Yeah, and I did my very best to show him Christ-like love, and and it was just it never was received very well, and it got really really bad. Where another a, a godly man had to come in there and say, you know what, you probably need to step away, sir. You know, you need you need to step away, and he did. He stepped away from the church, and and he moved on. And and uh, what was really odd about this story is the reason I bring it up is I've, I've had an enemy in the church, and as a pastor of a church, I had an enemy that was in that church. And it was just hard. And he went his own way, and he, he, he left the church, and we never really saw much of him ever again. Um, but then we got word that um, he died. Like it was just a random thing where he, you know, from what I hear, he slipped on some ice at some other, some other church building. He slipped on some ice, and he went to, you know, caused him to go to the hospital, and he, uh, you know, made some certain decisions about his health and said, that's it. And he just wasted away and died. And I got that news. And I'm ashamed to say there's a part of me that went, okay, I no longer have to deal with this guy ever again. I no longer have to deal with this situation ever again. The, the anger that he showed against me, all this ick that he tossed my way, that is gone. And I'm ashamed that that came up then because I was... Part of me was celebrating the fact that, that he was gone, that, that God chose that way to deal with him. He was my enemy, and that was God's chosen path for him. And I had to stop, because I'm like, I can't celebrate this. And it broke my heart. What broke my heart was we, we had no chance to have a concluding conversation where I could, we could, you know, we could ask each other's forgiveness or we could make amends one last time or some kind of great deathbed, you know, conversation. We, could, we couldn't have that. And I mourned that. So I showed up at his, at his wake and people were looking at me like, what's he doing here? Evidently, he talked about me to his friends and family too. And I saw his mother and I said, you know what? I, your son changed my life and I want to honor him. And it was true. And I went up to his casket and I just said, you know, I'm sorry. I'm sorry we never had an opportunity to talk one last time. I'm talking to a dead man. I say, you know what? I forgive you. I just want to say this over you right now. I forgive you. So when I bring him up now, I'm not doing so out of bitterness. I'm just informational sake as an enemy I've had. That account is closed, and I'm not sitting here as a bitter man because of it, where, where, where it's still drawing interest and, and the fire is still burning. I'm still seething against this guy. No, it's over. I've forgiven him. And I, I seize that opportunity at his casket to say those words. Can we celebrate that when it comes to our enemies? Can we have that perspective? 
we can celebrate God handling his business. I think that needs to be our focus. When things happen in our life and we're, we're tempted to get really selfish about it and go, yeah, yeah, God delivered us because they're the bad guys and God always has to protect it. No, that can't be it. Celebrate God's plan with that perspective. See, when you, when you read God's word, have an open mind that says, you know what, God, what's the big idea with this verse? with this chapter. What's really going on here? And I think there's two things in this chapter you got to wrestle with. And the first thing is the is the 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 putting yourself in Judah's shoes there. It's like how do you react? But the bigger thing is verse 13. I am against you, declares the Lord. What in your life right now is God against? What things do you continually hold on to, Christian? Just pause right now. What is it? What in your life is God against? I know you're a Christian. I know you've been delivered from your sins. I know from Ephesians chapter 2, you were dead in your sins, but now God, because of his mercy, by grace you've been saved. You've passed from death to life. I get it. You've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. But you're still holding on to things, aren't you? There's things in your life that you know don't please God. They are your strongholds, aren't they? That you cling to. What about your life is selfish that needs to stop? What idols in your life that if you ever were to have them called out, you might want to sin to keep them or to keep other people from knowing about? What is it? What is God against in your life? You might look at the, uh, in Galatians, the fruit of the Spirit and the fruit of the flesh, you know, those 10 verses there. What's hanging on the branches of the tree that is your life? Is it the fleshly fruit or the spiritual fruit? The fleshly fruit we want to hide. The spiritual fruit, oh, we want to show those all day long. What is it? What is God against in your life? You can't read verse 13 without having it kick you in the rear. I am against you. That's a terrifying verse. But it doesn't have to be. What needs to be confessed in your life? From what do you need to repent? John 3. John said, Jesus must become greater, I must become less, or he must increase, I must decrease. Enough of you. Less of you, more of Jesus. It's got close with that. What is God against? There's a lot of things in this world that God is against. There's a lot of attitudes that God's against. There's a lot of selfishness that God's against. You see it everywhere. It's all over your Facebook feed. You can't control them. In you. What's going on inside you? Against. That's why this thing is called against, this class. This this particular lesson in Nahum. Next week, we journey into Nahum chapter 3. God bless.